0: So take your Bibles, and let's turn to the book of Isaiah. You'll have to forgive me as I grab some cords here. I apologize about that. We had a great welcome dinner in youth group just a few minutes ago. Yes. Oh, yes. You mean you don't want to stay for my riveting, relaxed sermon? Relaxing? All right. Well, Pastor Kent said I wasn't allowed to relax, but we will let the little lights go, nonetheless. So, if you're a little light, or, or a discipled kid, the little lights are already out of here, aren't they? All right. Are we good, sound booth? All right. And then, um, in a moment, we'll dismiss the teenagers for. Uh, no, we won't. Not yet. So just the just the children right now. All right great. Isaiah, we're going to put our seatbelts back on tonight, but I'm not going to try to be as hurried as I was last week. I know I threw a lot at you, and truth be told, I probably have just as much to say, actually more to say. Um, But we'll just get through what we get through, and then we'll have a great discussion time afterwards. So for those of you who were part of that last week, appreciate that. Last week, we looked at really the the description of who God is, and we found out that Isaiah really treats God, uh, he certainly says a lot about God, he doesn't say all that he could say about God, uh, but that he really treats God in the context of holiness, theologians call God's holiness his governing attribute, I think we would all ascribe to that on the, the pastoral staff here, and Isaiah really, uh, really does a phenomenal job helping us see that. And Isaiah's emphasis on the holiness of God reveals just how sinful man really is. Really, it's the, it's the contrast. Now, as a, as a teenager and even as a young man, I would often define God's holiness based on the contrast to sin. And that's quite not fair, to be honest with you. That is not the totality of God's holiness, but it certainly is part of that. And so tonight we're going to see that sin is is, as Isaiah describes it, I think primarily, I would argue, that sin is self-exalting rebellion against the holy God who offers saving grace. That's self-exalting rebellion, against the holy God who offers saving grace. And we could put it a little bit more uh, pithily this way: judgment is always earned, and salvation is always of grace. That's a phenomenal truth that really Isaiah brings our attention to time and time again. That judgment is always earned, and the cause of judgment is sin. But salvation is always, always something freely given, a gift by God. And so at the heart of Isaiah's teaching about man's sinfulness is a proper understanding of what sin actually is. And in today's day and age, this couldn't be more applicable. Right? In the in the modern time, there was a structure put up, but in postmodern thinking, that structure was rejected and torn down. And in postmodern thinking, there is no everything is relative. Everything is is really defined based on one's reality. And one's reality can be quite different than your reality, and quite different than certainly the reality of the God of heaven. And so man's sinfulness is properly understood here in the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at, at least in this first part, the definition of that sin. That's about as far as I think I'm going to get. However, um, the book of Isaiah also uh, really enumerates for us the devastation of that sin. There's a few different ways that we'll, we'll play through those words Um, Not all here in this sermon, some in the discussion to come. But that devastation is primarily uh, uh, enumerated through through an understanding that we have broken, or we have a broken relationship with God. But back to God's holiness. It is the context for proper understanding of sin. That was our context, or our content last week, was who is God, and, and who is he in the book of Isaiah. And he is holy. He is altogether different. Isaiah puts it this way again in Isaiah chapter 40. In, in chapter 40, we have the series of "To whom will you liken God? What will you liken God to?" And there is nothing that you can liken God to. God is altogether separate and different. And so we could define God's holiness generally in several different ways. And we'd see that he's, it's this preeminent characteristic of God. It's who He is. It's His nature. It's God is holy, other. He's distinct and separate. He's He's uh, different than everything that he has made. And the fundamental characteristic of God's holiness is that he's set apart. And as I mentioned just a few seconds ago, as a young man, I often thought, okay, holiness is really the, the negative aspect, if you will, of God. That seems awful to say, and I don't know if I would have ever verbalized it that way, but in my thinking, I'd always think, well... Holiness is what I can't do. In other words, holiness is, holiness is really about not sinning. And so holiness, from that perspective, tends to have a, a relatively negative view of God. And, uh, and, and not, not in the sense that that's wrong, but in the sense that there's a lot that I as a human shouldn't do, end up doing, and, and, and I can't do at the end of the day. And so I you know, you, you kind of hear God's holiness, and, and we're going to talk about God's holiness today, and that's not, for most of us, that's not the most exciting subject to come here, right? For most of us, we kind of think about, okay, well, the opposite of holiness is, is sin, and, and fundamentally what I'm trying to say is that's just not true. It is an aspect of it for sure that God is morally pure and that he does not sin and that all that he is for sure is not sin. But God's holiness is so much more than that. It is to be celebrated and and searched after and praised and he is to be worshiped and it really is quite a quite an energizing topic to discuss, quite frankly. We often define God and his holiness with the context of sin. So we, we can do it the other way as well. In other words, this is what sin is, and so this is not God. And that isn't a fair view or, or even an accurate view or even a, be, a good beginning of who God is. For sure, he's immorally pure, and so he must be opposite of sin. This happens all the time, quite frankly, in Christianity. Take, for instance, worship styles, drinking of alcohol, entertainment, the definitions even now of, of marriage and the purpose of it. We often approach these topics first by asking, um, or, or I, rather we, we, we ask the question, okay, what does God say? What is the black and white of it? What is sin? And that's, that's a fine question to ask, but it's not really the best question. Especially when the Word of God gives us sufficiency for life, right? I mean, it tells us how to live, but it doesn't give us every single instance and every single thing to abstain from and to do. I mean, the book of Proverbs essentially is written so that we can take all that we know of God's Word and rightly uh, seek to skillfully apply it to our life. And even if we could, even if God had given us every single instance of everything that we would ever encounter in our life, do you think you would be able to remember it? Right? Of course not. So God gives us principles. He certainly does call out what sin is. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But especially in the area of Christian liberty, and I know we have a discussion group on that, that very topic, especially in the area of Christian liberty, there is some debate about what is not only good and acceptable, but but then what is the best? And so when we start with the question of what is sin, rather than the question, what is our God like, we really start to spin our wheels often in these debates on what is acceptable and what is not. Because when things aren't quite spelled out black and white as we would like to see it, That's when the spinning of wheels happens for us as we approach wisdom things. And so this isn't a message on Christian liberty, but this is really a message trying to reorient as we understand how Isaiah is trying to depict sin. Okay, that's our topic tonight. How is Isaiah trying to depict sin for us? And quite frankly, Isaiah starts with the God of heaven every time. And he causes us to look at who he is and to start there every time. And if we fail to do that, we quite, we just lose it. We will go down the wrong path somewhere. And so we must ask the question, what is our God like? And so Isaiah defines God based on his Nature, We saw this last week, that he is transcendent yet imminent in Isaiah chapter 57. That he is high and lofty, and yet he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the Holy One of Israel. And so he's nothing like us, and yet he decided to love us, to condescend to us, and to save us. That's a tremendous truth. He's majestic and glorious. Isaiah defines the nature of God this way. To whom will you liken me, we read, right? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. He's the majestic one, the one who leads forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name. I mean, how many of us can even get all the kids right in junior church? Their names right. I can, and I'm, I'm a youth pastor. That's pathetic. Pa- I don't know why. Stella just asked me today. I don't know if she was. She says, Dad, who, who are the five-year-olds and I said, stop, no, I don't even know who's five, let alone to tell you who's the, who are the five-year-olds. She said, Daddy, not even one? I know, rebuked by my three-year-old. But God's great. He knows the, the number of hair on, on their heads, let alone their names. He's great and his strength and his power. No, not one of them is missing. And that's of his stars. So we can import his, his majestic nature to to our care, to his care for us. He's glorious. We saw last week Isaiah chapter 6 that the whole earth is full of his glory. The earth can be viewed from, from in one sense as God's assets, God's assets of glory. All that God is, he, he, he seeks to put on this, not all that he is, but he seeks to put on a, a large amount of who he is on display for us. We know that Psalm 19 uh, does that as well, says that as well. And so Isaiah depicts God as transcendent, yet imminent, majestic, and glorious. He is unique. There is none like Him. A proper way to define God's holiness is not what can't I do, but it is who is God. It's that positive aspect of God's holiness. A proper understanding of who God is should change our lives. There's nothing like God. Nothing like him. In all the universe, he is the only one. And all of our experience somehow muddies that up at times. The people that we trust in the most can fail us. Our day can change on a dime because of news that we get, but not so with the God of heaven. He is unique and totally different. He is like no one else. Different and distinct. And so, how we live life really has everything to do with who we think God is. And if we're going to be different and distinct individuals, we're going to be people who understand God's nature. That He is totally different. Totally unique. And that our lives should look so different. Because the God of heaven is so different. And remember, we value Him above all else. Nothing is like Him. And so things tend to get in the way of that, don't they? Right? Pastor in Ecclesiastes, things get in the way. And and at the end of the day, there's really nothing wrong with some of those things. After all, God made them. Or God gave us the ability to do them. And yet, We can easily value them like they're something special. My friends, God really is the only special one. He is unique. He is sovereign. And this is key as we really consider uh, the theme of sin in Isaiah. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. Three times, at least, in my count of of reading of Isaiah, uh, there's the picture that God is. God is the potter, and we are the clay. And so really, Isaiah's point, after every single time, is God has absolute authority and right as sovereign. Absolute authority and sovereign. He has the right to say and to set the standard. And we have the responsibility to follow. God defines sin. He has the right to do that. Okay, as, we, as we understand what Isaiah is saying. Remember, he's, he's giving us a window into sin, but he wants us to make sure that we understand it appropriately as we look at who God is. So, the world doesn't define sin. Popular culture doesn't define sin. Political correctness doesn't define sin. Your standards do not define sin. And churches have been split based on standards versus... The nature of God. And so, my friends, God has the absolute right. He is sovereign. And he is morally pure. He is morally pure. Let the wicked forsake his way, the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord in Isaiah 55, and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. That's in the context of God being morally pure and upright. For as the heavens are as higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah chapter 5. But the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment. His thoughts, his ways, he defines. And he uh, he will be exalted, and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. See, it's all based on who God is, my friends. That's the definition of sin. It's contrary to who God is. And so you must define sin as God defines sin. God sets the standard. He sets the standard, and his standard does not change. You know, as we read through Isaiah, and I think one of the themes perhaps will be uh, judgment a little bit further down the road, as we read through Isaiah, um, you know, and, and the prophets in general. People can say, "Well, well, why does God determine or decide to judge now versus later, and why does God d- d- decide to judge later versus now, and 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 who, what right does He have anyway to determine these things?" This is the God of heaven. It's the high and lifted up one. It's the majestic one in greatness. It's, it's the one whose glory is dispro- displayed throughout all the assets of creation. It's the one who is unlike anything or anyone. He is the maker with the absolute right and ability to purpose, control, and command and, who's absolute, uh, and who is absolutely contrary and opposite of wickedness, defining what is good, just, right, and true. God must, must judge sin. His very nature demands it. And it is against the backdrop that we understand the tremendous mercy and grace of God. The fact that He's the high and lifted up one and that He is set apart and totally different, but yet that He still is the God of Israel. In the Old Testament, the God who sent His Son for the the new covenant, who gave us a way of salvation. And so remember, judgment is always earned. That's very clear in Isaiah. It's very clear in the prophets in general. And Yet salvation is always the gracious gift of God. And so, just a little backdrop of God in Isaiah. And so on to the definition of sin. On to the definition of sin. So take your Bibles, and we were, we really guided, we're not really going through a chapter and a verse per se as we look at the theology of Isaiah. I either mentioned last time in the discussion time or in the preaching time. It's all a blur, and so I have no idea where I said what anymore. Um, and so if I, if I said I said something and, and, and I didn't, well, I said it in a different time. That's a great, that's, a great, that's awesome. All right? Um, and so let's took, look at the book Uh, the the chapter 1 of the book of Isaiah. And we're not going through a chapter and verse per se because of the theological themes. Uh, But I did mention at one place, at one time, that uh, chapter 1 had a really good overview, essentially, of of Isaiah's progress throughout the book uh, in several different ways. And one of those ways is uh, his definition of sin and his discussion of sin. And so in verse 2, I really will read verses 2 through 4. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons, I have reared up and brought up. And here we're going to start to, to really consider what is the definition of sin. Isaiah gives us four common words for sin in these next few verses. So he says, but they have revolted or rebelled against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They are. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised, and here's that term we looked at last week, the Holy One of Israel, the Transcendent Holy One, and yet the Emmanuel, the One who's with His people. They have turned away. From him. And so the first word in a few minutes, a first word, rebelled. We see that in verse 2. In the Nazbi, it's translated revolted. In the King James, uh, it's translated often as trespass in the Hebrew uh, to, to, to English or transgress. And it's, it's worth noting off the bat that all of these words in, 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 cha- in verse 2 and in verse 4, and we'll look at the others in a second, all these words in the Hebrew, have a non-moral use. In other words, there's nothing necessarily spiritually wrong with them. That, that is these words for sin. So these are words that were familiar in the Hebrew tongue. And yet, at the same time, within, cer- within the context, it was, it was horrific. It was what broke the, the relationship, the covenantal relationship between God and man. It's, it's, it's really that started... Uh, before the covenant was even given in, the, in, in Genesis chapter 3. Right, but, but they have revolted or rebelled. So the non-moral use of this word really is a, it's a political word. Um, it's, it's, it's perhaps best described even in Isaiah's context as there would be a, a nearby country that would come in, that would invade, that would conquer, and would this, uh, then have a vassal state. And the people that were now being conquered they would mount up a rebellion there's the word not necessarily a spiritually wrong thing they were trying to reclaim what was taken away and so there's no uh, morality there um, it also has to do in the in 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 the new old testament uh, with the with the rebellion of a parent child relationship you would say well there's something wrong there and indeed there is um, but in the spiritual sense Right, Isaiah uh, used this word really as a key descriptor of what sin is. It is rebellion against, remember, the holy God, the sovereign God, the one who has absolute right and authority to establish his standard. Amen. And it's not God that changes or God on a whim that judges, but my friends, it is the rebellion of the standard it is the rebellion of the authority it's the rejection of god as king it's used at least 20 times in the book of isaiah this word rebellion and it ultimately uh, speaks to the rejection of god's authority and a failure to submit to god and what is isaiah's commentary on it look at verse three right he says not even dumb beasts do this to their master but yet what do we do we are rebellious by our nature so we don't even so we would be better off as beasts in one sense better off as beasts because we rebel and so what's the second word that second word is in verse 4 alas sinful Nation, you see it there. It's a typical word, mostly uh, that we would be mostly most common with, translated as sin. In the non-moral sense, I should hit my little clicker. In the non-moral sense, um, it is missing the mark, right? We we understand that from the New Testament. An illustration of that would be the, the the Benjaminites, and and they were skillful in their use of weaponry. If if you happen to To know and and they would shoot their arrows and they would sling their stones and they would not miss the mark they would not sin well that had nothing to do with their moral uprightness it was the fact that they were pretty good shots and that they could hit the target they were skillful they were skillful that's the non-moral sense in the in the spiritual sense obviously sin is missing the mark it is it is God setting what the target my friends a theological definition of sin is God's nature is not attained or not adhered to it is God's nature is the target It is God's holiness. It is all that he is. And that's why Isaiah spends so much time focusing on this unique, sovereign, majestic, glorious one. Because it is only when we look at him that we see the true nature of who we are. And you know you've talked to people and you plead with people to see their sin. And what is the problem? They say, yeah, I get it. I'm bad. But they don't get God. They just don't get him. It's, it's the reality of those who are blinded by the prince of the power of this air. And so as even this morning, as we pray for those who we can minister to and, and wield the, the light of the gospel into their lives, what happens they've got to come to terms with not only themselves true yes but they don't get who they are if they don't get how good god is that is a classic definition without probably less with a little less passion in a the systematic theology so sin is missing the mark it is it is missing the nature of god and we know that Paul carries that into to the New Testament for us. And He says in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 3 and verse 23, right, that all have sinned and what? Fall short. They've missed the mark. And what did they miss the mark of? The glory of God. And so, my, my friends, sin is fundamentally... Missing the mark of who God is. Sin is also iniquity in verse 4. Iniquity, you see that word there? People weighed down with iniquity. In the non-moral sense, it meant crooked, bented, twisted. In Proverbs, we, we come to this often where, where it, was, it, it was a crooked path versus a straight path. And so there was nothing wrong with calling a path crooked It was crooked, it was crooked. That's the that's the that's what that path should be called. It was crooked. But in the spiritual sense, it is depicted as something so burdensome, something so weighty, something so heavy that it would distort and bend and just cause to be crooked. It's really used in three different ways, and I think I'm going to save that for our discussion time. But the primary sense that I think it's used here is it's used in the the sense of of forensic guilt. In in other words, not feeling bad about something, but having the standing of legal culpability, of actually being guilty of something. That's That's what David says in Psalm 51, right? He says, Wash me, remove my what? My iniquity, my guilt. He's not saying somehow reverse the clock so that I'd never have, that I would never have done what I've done or did. But what he's saying is take my guilt away. And so in this sense, they are a people in Isaiah chapter 1, and in the book of Isaiah, they are a people weighed down they are people tremendously burdened with the forensic with the guiltiness of their life and so the guilt of sin is an impossible load to bear it is an impossible load to bear and and as we move in to other themes in Isaiah we see that that he really uh, makes great great tremendous use of of their sin and saying you can't do it you can't remove it you can't bear it you can't wash it it's been clear from the beginning you need something someone and obviously we come to some great uh, realities of the messiah to come and so iniquity heavy with iniquity so rebellion against god's authority sinfulness missing the mark iniquity, the guilt of sin, that guilt that, by the way, causes or is the cause of judgment in the prophets. And then the last word that we'll look at, offering offspring, excuse me, of evildoers, offspring of evildoers. It's the most equivalent to our word bad in the sense that um, we could, in non-moral ways, have uh, bad actions or harmful things or dangerous things come about. We could have a, uh, a bad day, right? I got in, I was uh, on my way to the youth dinner, and uh, uh, I hit an ice cream truck and made all the kids that were on the street not be able to have ice cream. Not only was I late to the youth group dinner, but then I also hit an ice cream truck, and they couldn't. The kid, the 20 kids, were mad at me. Right, bad day, right? Or we could have bad, in Northeast Ohio, weather! Yes, not right now, it's sunny and hot, but we could have bad weather. There's nothing moral about weather, except for the fact that meteorologists get paid to be right or wrong. There's nothing moral about it, right? And the fact of the matter is it can be used in a non-moral sense. Um, and that—that's that, how it's used in Isaiah chapter 45. I have that verse here. The one forming light—that's God—and creating darkness, causing—and here's key well-being, right? So God um, lets the the rain fall. He gives us light. He gives us blessings, and creating—in the King James—it's translated—it's the same word, evil. That could cause a problem. Is God the author of evil? Well, if you know he, the Hebrew word here, you could say, well, this is used in the non-moral sense, especially since we understand that God, God causes well-being as, as, as well as calamity. As well, in other words, God's, in, he's, the, he's the author, he's the finisher, he's the absolute sovereign. He controls the weather. And so in that sense, he allows uh, tornadoes to come through towns and uh, bad weather systems to happen. He certainly doesn't uh, cause evil, but he is the one in control of all, and we better get that. And so, uh, and so it can be used in that sense. Spiritually, um, obviously has, has nothing to do with bad storms, uh, but it could, we could say instead of a bad storm in a non-moral sense, in, in a spiritual sense, or in a moral sense, we could say Hitler was a bad man. And that would certainly be a, a moral sense of the word. And so it is moving from actions that are uh, merely harmful. How is Hitler harm, uh, a, a bad man? Well, he's harmful. He was dangerous. He was disgusting. There was all kinds of things. He was twisted. He was tormented. But, but the, the fact of the matter is um, evil is dangerous. It's destructive in nature. And so we want to see that sin is evil. We are evildoers. We are destructive and dangerous in our sin, and any one of us who have lived in sin for a great amount of time know how the wake of sin has caused devastation and destruction in families and in other people, not just yourselves. So sin is always dangerous. With the ultimate danger, right? The never-ending danger. And so uh, judgment is always earned. Salvation is always of grace. These are four simple terms that Isaiah gives us and uses throughout. In our discussion time, we're going to talk about how Isaiah uses these terms throughout the book. And then we're going to also look at not only sin's terminology, but its totality. What that actually means to the nature of man. And so that'll be a a discussion for us tonight. But as we end, I want us to, to remember that God's Answer in Isaiah to sin right, means that we have to approach we have to deal with sin on God's terms and my friends no one in here can do that for themselves no one in here can do that for somebody else I love my family I can't do it for them there's only one person that can and Isaiah gloriously points to him who will come and for us who has come The Lord Jesus Christ, He and He alone washes all our sin away. And so we take great comfort and care to throw our sins on Him. Father, I pray tonight that You would help us, help us to understand what our sin is. And that can be a that can be a tremendously dangerous thing to do focus on sin it certainly isn't certainly isn't an enjoyable thing. But I think if we do it the way Isaiah has taught us to do it. And that is to take stock in who you are in your nature. Oh, any time we see the sin in our lives, it's not a cause it's not a cause for defeat or for self-pity but it ultimately is a cause to run fast and furious to you. Because you alone teach us. And you alone transform us. And it is through your Son that we gloriously are transformed. I pray if there's anyone in here tonight that doesn't know What to do with their sin, or even how bad it really is. Why are they even spending the gathering? What what are they doing? Why are they talking about this? That tonight, through discussion, through fellowship, they would come to the feet of Jesus and they would see his nail pierced hands and they would know his shed blood washes their sin away forever it's in your name we pray amen all right and pastors remember um, pastor hobbes isn't here so we don't have that group tonight so that's
1: reflected in there thank you I was Thinking matthew chapter 1 and verse 23 uh, matthew presents salvation to the jewish mind in his gospel from Isaiah 714. Um, Holiness came to unholiness in the form of a man. Uh, How gracious. Amen. Amen. We can just look to look to him and find relief for our souls. um, Emmanuel is God with us. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, On the screen behind you are the opportunities that you have tonight. I'm with the deacons and their wives up in the college and career room. Uh, Pastor Hobbs is out of town tonight, and we had planned on that happening. So these are the options that you have. Teenagers, I'll go to Life app, and uh, you'll be outside next door. and uh, So you can head there, and we'll see you in the various classrooms in about five minutes. All right, let's be dismissed. Lord bless you.